Okay. All right. Um, I'm at the International Congress of Mathematicians in Hyderabad, India, and I am talking to Brendan McKay, an Australian mathematician. And apart from uh, mathematical research focusing on, is it theoretical computer science? Theoretical computer science and discrete mathematics. So apart from important research in that area, um, Brendan's also had the experience of uh, being very involved in debunking something called the Bible Codes. Um, Brendan, perhaps could you start off by telling us what the Bible Codes were and, and what they were supposed to show? Well, the basic idea is that inside the text of the Bible, in its original language, which was Hebrew, there are messages that relate to the present time or even to the future. And these messages are encoded by a method called skipping where you start with some letter and skip a certain number of letters and choose another one. For example, you might take uh, some letter and then skip 10 letters, then skip 10 letters, then skip 10 letters. When you do this, occasionally you find words or even phrases. And it's claimed that if you do this cleverly using a computer, you can uncover meaningful messages. And in... And so, so the idea is you take the text of the Bible, I think it was written in Hebrew, and you lay the letters out side by side with no gaps and no punctuation, and essentially you can skip letters, skip certain numbers of letters, and you build up this kind of code. Yes, the usual way is to write it out with all the spaces and punctuation removed using exactly the same number of letters per line. So you get a rectangle of letters and then you can read it vertically or in diagonals or you might skip in the diagonal three letters at a time or so on like that. The only rule really is that once you start skipping you have to keep using the same skip all the time. And what did they, what, what messages did they believe they found, they found in the Bible? Well they claim to have found all sorts of messages about the future but the particular claim that got me interested in the first place was claimed that the Bible knew about uh, famous rabbis from the Middle Ages. They claimed that when you look at the names of the rabbis and the dates of death encoded in this fashion, then these appear close together in the text, more likely to be close together than chance would predict. And um what did you find when you started to look at this work? And this work was originally accepted for publication in a, in a peer-reviewed journal, wasn't it? Yes, it came out in quite a good statistics journal called Statistical Science. And it was quite well written and seemed to be quite tight. They did an experiment that appeared to be quite a good experiment and obtained a fairly strong result, strongly suggesting that there was something to their claim. And what, when you had a look at it, what did you find? Well, I started to look at the mathematics behind the method and I found some problems with it, but I was never really quite satisfied that I'd solved the problem. Then I got into contact with uh, some uh, colleagues in Israel who were looking at the data used for the experiment and had made some more interesting discoveries about it. The most interesting discovery was that the data was not so precisely defined. These different rabbis had various names that were used for them, like acronyms, or some of them were known by the names of famous books they'd written. And also there was some variation in the way their names were spelt. 
and by making some fairly minor adjustments to exactly how the names were represented, you could change a positive result into a negative result. And so this started us thinking that maybe there was something in, a, in the way that they were compiling the data which explained their strong result. So I believe that you were able to use a very similar method to theirs um, to produce a list of rabbis that, that had just the same uh, level of validity as their original list. And with that list, you were able to find the same list of rabbis appearing very closely together in, was it Moby Dick? No, it was War and Peace, actually the Hebrew translation of War and Peace. In order to show that it was plausible to produce the result by um, tweaking the data, we deliberately tweaked the data ourselves in order to produce a very similar looking result using the text of War and Peace instead of the Bible. And that was successful. And so, sort of, what were your conclusions from that? There wasn't, it wasn't particularly amazing that that this list of rabbis was found in the Bible, it was more that the list of rabbis that they composed was particularly amazing. Well, it wasn't quite so simple because even though we demonstrated the experiment could be cooked uh, in this fashion, that doesn't necessarily mean that they did it. It would be also quite amazing if somebody compiling the data completely blindly produced such a strong result. So. In order to go one step further, we contacted an, exper um, an expert on the names of medieval rabbis and asked him to independently compile a list of their names and spellings of their names. And then we tested his data in the Bible itself and we found a quite negative result. This shows that there was something peculiar about the list of names that was originally used. So do you have any thoughts on, on what actually happened then? Well, we don't really claim to know exactly how it, it happened, but I think there's probably some sort of bias in the experimental method which favoured names that work compared to names that didn't work. And when you have quite a lot of data, you only have to have a small amount of bias in order to obtain an overall strong result. And since then, um, there was a very famous book published, The Bible Codes, and uh, it's had a couple of reissues and, and various other things. And, and other possibly more startling claims have been made that, that the Bible and other uh, predicted future events. Um, and what, what, do you, what have you sort of learnt about studying those claims? Well, this is rather unscientific claim, so it was... Uh, really a bit of fun to try to do the same sort of thing in other texts. Uh, the book was written by an American journalist called Michael Drosnin and he issued a challenge that was published by Newsweek. He said that if my opponents find the assassination of a Prime Minister predicted in Moby Dick then he'll, he'll believe them. Uh, so of course I got to Moby Dick and I started looking for famous assassinations and I found Martin Luther King JFK, Indira Gandhi, now we're in India, I'll mention that one, and several other famous assassinations, Leon Trotsky, for example. So does this mean that perhaps every written text ha contains some evidence about future events, or is it something that no matter what sort of string you're, you're looking for, you'll find the data in any written text? Well, I have met people who, who say that Every text comes from God eventually, so there's no reason why it shouldn't have predictions of the future as well. 
The problem with that argument is you can find contradictory things. If you find JFK will be assassinated, you can also find JFK will not be assassinated. Really, the number of places you can look in a normal-sized book is so vast, like billions, and computers can do it so efficiently that if you look for long enough, you'll find anything you want to find. And this means it doesn't really have any value as far as predictions concerned. So it sounds like these more recent claims are even less scientific than the first one. They're really just looking for an instance of phrases or words in a whole text. Yes, that's right. They're, they're good for publicity because you have pictorial evidence and famous events. And the original scientific paper, of course, can only be understood by people with training in statistics. And maybe you even need to know a bit of Hebrew to understand what's happening. But the, the popular claims have been very useful in popularising the idea and also gives us a bit of fun in debunking them by the same means. So I could find an interesting fact, if I sort of asked for an interesting fact about myself or what I was going to have for lunch tomorrow, you might be able to find that phrase in, in any sort of book I gave you to analyse. Yes, quite likely, if I took a little while to do it. Yeah. And um, did this did this work that you did debunking those codes, did it shed any light on any deeper problems or did it tell, or do you think it was a useful opportunity to kind of explain to the public about the way experiments like these are designed? Well, I did learn quite a lot about statistical experiments and how very subtle biases can creep in to modify the result. And this, of course, is why serious things like medical experiments have to follow strict protocols, such as double blinding, where neither the patient nor the experimenters know who is taking the real drug and who is taking the placebo. Because even if you can't imagine exactly why some pr procedure other than that would cause a bias, in exper by experience we know that it does. And did it, did it have any relevance to your own work that you do in your day job when you're not debunking Bible codes? No, not really. This is just a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> and you were giving a talk to, uh, yesterday, no, so, no sorry, you were giving a talk on Sunday at the ICM two days ago. What, can you give us a, a general flavour of what that talk was on and, and um, how that relates to other areas of mathematics? Well, I was talking on a subject called asymptotic enumeration. Uh, enumeration means counting things. So you have some mathematical objects and you want to know how many of them there are for a particular size. And the word asymptotic means that you're allowing the size to get arbitrarily large, or we'd say going to infinity. And we want to know how many of them there are for very large size. So, for example, if you take a a square array of zeros and ones, say there's 10 rows and 10 columns, and it has the property that every row and every column has exactly two ones in it, then you can ask how many of them there are. And in that case, it's possible to work out a formula. It's not very simple, but you can do it. But if I ask you about 10 ones in each row and 10 ones in each column, then nobody knows the formula. It's just too hard. However, if we take the, um, the array, the table of zeros and ones to be extremely large, then I can tell you very accurately how many there are. Not the exact number, but 
really very good estimate and that's the type of thing I was talking about. So is it something about the nature of when the table that you're looking at becomes very large? It sound, is, it, is it something to do with probability that the, because there's such large because it's such large dimensions to the problem that you're looking at you can make a more accurate kind of assessment whereas if you're looking at smaller you've kind of got a larger pool to, to look at is it something to do with that? Yes it is when, when the table's small things can happen which are very unlikely in a big table so when you've got a big table which has lots of space in it then things average out and you have the average behaviour of the structure of the table rather than particular behaviour that you might see near the corners for example. And does this work have, um, does this work uh, come into contact with other areas of mathematics or other areas of science? Oh, there's lots of areas of mathematics where asymptotics is important. Uh, for example, the study of behaviour of gases, uh, the study of the behaviour of very large chemical molecules like polymers, um, uh, galaxies, <laughs> lots of different things. So it's a good illustration of how something that's quite theoretical and abstract can really have an effect in other areas of science and mathematics. Yes, well, nobody has found an application of the particular things I was talking about, but that's the way mathematics goes. You make discoveries and expand your knowledge of the mathematical area, then with quite a good chance someone will come along later, maybe next year or maybe 10 years' time, and find that it's actually useful for a real practical problem. And this happens so many times that we just get used to it. I mean, that's something that really struck me when I was listening to the laudations of the Fields Medalist, that in in every case, I think, they'd used tools from very disparate areas of mathematics to prove long-standing problems. And I think maybe it's something that people don't realise from outside of mathematics, how much sort of collaborations or cross-disciplinary work is the thing that makes the advances. And I guess that's why conferences like this one are, are very important. Yes, practically all of them were using mathematics that was developed for one thing or developed just for fun in order to solve problems that are extremely important in understanding the universe. So sometimes we might not know where the mathematics is going, but, but very often it's, it's the sort of blue skies research that has great impact on other areas. Yes, and that's why most of us are very dark on the idea of using immediate application in order to drive funding for mathematics. You really get much more out of it if you allow the mathematicians to, at least to a large extent, follow their heads and discover things that they're good at rather than things that they're told to work on because down the track somewhere that will be the thing that you actually need. Okay, well thank you very much for talking to us, Brendan. It's been really interesting and I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay in India. It was a pleasure, thank you.